Gordon Fee wrote a commentary in 1 Corinthians. He spent about 20 years just doing the research to get himself ready for this project. I mean, he, he took all that time just to gather all the data, reading and studying and teaching this book again and again and again, just so he'd get a better grasp of God, what God's actually saying here. Well, after years and years of preparation, uh, he decided he's finally ready to put those thoughts down on paper. Hey, I'm, I'm ready to share what I've learned in this long journey of, of trying to comprehend what God's teaching in the book of 1 Corinthians. But as he began to write the commentary, Gordon Fee said the most difficult part of the project was when he got to this chapter that we're going to begin to study today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. How do I explain, just adequately explain the meaning of these words? When I first heard him say this, I was surprised because uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. It's the chapter that talks about love. You know, it starts off by saying, I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. And then you get down to the middle part of that chapter, and it begins to describe this very special love, how it's patient and kind. And then you get down to the very end, and it finishes in this way. Now, these three things remain, faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. And you would think, with all the difficult issues you have to wrestle with when you're trying to teach a book like this, 1 Corinthians, and trust me, there are all kinds of challenges and difficulties in teaching a book like that, you would think that by the time you got to a chapter like this, a chapter on love, this would be the easiest chapter of all to talk about. I mean, this is the scripture that I use at every wedding that I perform, because here are some of the most beautiful, inspiring words in all of scripture. And yet, Dr. Gordon Fee, this brilliant New Testament scholar, said that when he got to this part of the commentary, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he said, for the longest time, I just sat there at the desk, and I just stared at the words, and I wondered, what am I going to say? I mean, here's the most sublime piece of poetry that has ever been written. What could I add to that? And he said at that moment, he could feel God speaking to him. Gordon, don't you understand? This is the way I love you. Yeah, Lord, I get that. I understand that. And I really appreciate that. Do you, Gordon? Do you really? I mean, what if I didn't love you this way? What if I wasn't patient? What if I wasn't kind? What if these words weren't true? And Dr. Gordon Fee, this big man who sometimes can be pretty loud and brash and intimidating to his students, he just sat there in his chair and began to cry like a baby. He said, I wept for more than an hour because suddenly he was just overwhelmed. What if God wasn't like this? What if he didn't treat us this way? What if God didn't love like God? What, what if God loved everybody the way I do? You know, when it suits me, when I find it to be convenient, when I consider others to be nice and charming, and I think they act like, okay, I'll do it. But otherwise, forget about it. Boy, if God loved everybody that way, we'd be in trouble, right? Let, let's be honest. We know what our hearts are really like. Every one of us here, we have this devilish side to us. You know, the other day you were out playing with your dog. You were playing a game of fetch, and after, after a couple of rounds of tossing the ball in different directions, so he'd go out and retrieve it, you decided to play a trick. Next time around, you reared back like this time. You were really going to throw it far. You're going to toss the ball way out there in that, that field of tall grass. Only when you moved your arm, you didn't actually let go of the ball. You only pretended to throw it. You faked it, and old Pooch didn't catch the fake. And he went running out in that field of weeds, and now he's out there sniffing and searching for something he's never going to find. He's, he's out there looking for a ball that never left your hand, and you're standing back in the yard just grinning. See, you set him up. You created this expectation in him, and then at the last second, you changed everything without letting him know. You, you violated a trust. You deliberately did something to make him look bad. You let him go running out the field, running out there like a fool, looking for a ball that he's never going to be able to find. So you could stand back in the yard just laugh. 
Now, I know that's just a game with a dog, but here's the truth. We all have that bent. We all have this tendency on the inside of us where every once in a while, hey, we get a little joy, we get a little kick out playing tricks, setting other people up so we can laugh at them, so we can ridicule them. See, even the nicest people sometimes can be so ornery and so mean. Here's another example. Penn State University, they did a study of how people behave in a parking lot. I mean, for weeks, they watched these shoppers as they come in and out of the parking lot at a large mall. And here's what they noticed, that people always take longer to get out of their parking spot when they know that somebody else is waiting to get that space. And this wasn't just some impression that they had. Dr. Barry Rubick, a sociologist at Penn State, he and a whole team of people were doing this. I mean, for weeks, they pulled out the stopwatch, and they would time people, and they'd write down the notes. And, and they learned that when, when you knew that nobody else was waiting for your spot, drivers took an average of about 26 seconds to pull out and, and go on their way. But when you knew that another driver was hovering nearby, waiting to get your parking spot, now people took an average of at least 31 seconds or more before they finally got out of the way. And when another person was waiting to get your spot and they began to get impatient with you and began to honk the horn, come on, come on, now people took an average of 43 seconds or more <laughs> before they finally got out of the way. Now, Dr. Barry Rubick and his, and his team, they had some big fancy words to describe this kind of behavior, but my grandmother was a little more blunt. My grandmother used to say that people are like a wheelbarrow. They're hard to push and easily upset. And she's right. Even the nicest people can sometimes be so ornery and so mean. But here's the good news. God's not like that. God is not easily provoked. God is not easily upset. God never tries to take advantage of others just so he can make them look bad. What is God like? 1 Corinthians 13. See, this love that we're talking about here, this is no ordinary kind of love. This is something divine. This is something supernatural. This is something that comes from the very heart of God. In other words, if you want to understand the words that we're going to be studying here, you need to take that word love and substitute it with the word God. Instead of reading love is patient, love is kind, no, read it this way. God is patient. God is kind. Because that's what's actually being described here. Here is how God behaves towards us. But there's more to it than that. You remember the first miracle that Jesus performed? We read about in John chapter 2. Jesus is attending a wedding, and while he's there, he turns the water into wine. And you remember how he did this? There were six enormous jars, huge stone jars, each one of them filled with water. Not the kind of water you drink, but the kind of water you use to wash your hands so it's something flat and warm. In other words, there's nothing appealing at all about the water that's sitting inside each one of those jars. But then the jars meet Jesus. They have an encounter with the Lord, and it changes everything. changes in this way. Though the outside of the pot still looks the same, yet what's on the inside is now something new. Every one of those jars is filled with the finest wine in town. Now, the lesson is this. What Jesus did with those stone jars is exactly what he's hoping to be able to do in your life and mine. Fill us with something new. See, the lesson is it's not the pot that counts, but what's in the pot. It's the heart that matters. God knows if he can truly get a hold of your heart, then other people are going to begin to notice, hey, what happened? I see something different coming out of your life. You're not the same anymore. The way you talk, the attitude you display, the way you handle your problems, the way you treat other people, you're different. Who got a hold of you? Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. See, he's writing this letter to a church where everybody's just so competitive. I mean, they're all the time trying to outdo each other. And it's creating all kinds of conflict because the people are selfish and jealous and mean and rude. Everything they're not supposed to be. But the Apostle Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, what if 
What if this body, which later on in 2 Corinthians he'll describe as an old clay jar, you know, like the stone pots at the wedding. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what if this body were actually a temple for God's Holy Spirit? What if the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, began to live here and use your life and mine as a vessel by which he could pour out his love on others? What would that look like? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. See, this is not a chapter where, okay, David, give it, the, give it your best shot. Give it your every effort. Try your best to be patient. Try your best to be kind, because that's not going to work. David being patient, yeah, sure, up to a point. But you let me get a little bit tired, and I'm not so nice anymore. I mean, ask my wife. Talk to my kids and my grandkids. They'll verify this. And David starts to get tired. He gets edgy, and he gets cranky, and he begins to snap at the people around him. David being kind, sure, when there's no stress in my life. But you let the pressure be applied. You let people start to begin to complain and cr criticize some of the work that I'm doing. And all my composure goes flying out the window. But what if God lived here? Now with God living and working inside of David, David has the real possibility of learning how to be patient. Now with God living and working here, David has the real possibility of being kind. And the word kind here literally means useful to do things that are truly helpful and beneficial for others. You see, God and David, and all of a sudden, a whole different kind of love comes pouring out of this life. Now, here's my point. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is not a poem about how to make room for love in your heart, this vague, abstract feeling, whatever that is. No, it's so much more than that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a lesson on how do you make room for God so He can actually take up residence here and now he can begin to love others through me. That's the context. Let's just take a look at the first couple of verses this morning. And we'll take a look at the other verses in the coming weeks as we talk about this theme of messy relationships. And how God helps us with those relationships. But let's set the stage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Paul says, the Apostle Paul writes, I will show you. That's key. This is not a love you can just talk about. It doesn't mean anything unless it's put on display. This is a love that is meant to be shared, is meant to be shown. And I will show you the most excellent way to live. But some people don't get that. Some people are like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm really not letting God work. I'm using these talents and skills for my benefit, not for him. Then I just become a bunch of noise. I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. See, here are people trying to find their identity, their sense of significance, and their gifts rather than the God who gave them those gifts. And they're missing the point. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, I, I got all the facts down pat. I know everything there is to know about the Bible. And I'm just like the priest and the Levite in that parable of the Good Samaritan, that story that Jesus told, the priest and the Levite spending all day, every day up there at the temple in Jerusalem talking about God. Sounds so impressive. But it's on the way home we find out what these two guys are actually like. They could care less about that man who's hurting and suffering, laying there on the side of the road. And now we discover all that talk of the temple, it was just that. It was just talk because their hearts are empty. God's not really living and working there. Or the middle part of verse 2, if I have faith, uh, a faith that can move mountains, I can do heroic things. But if I'm doing that to make a name for myself, to build up my own reputation, not to make a name for the Lord, yeah, the world will stand back and applaud what I do, but there won't be any applause from heaven. Or verse 3, if I give all that I possess to the poor, I'm super generous and I give over my body to hardship, even martyrdom. 
I mean, I make the ultimate in the way of sacrifice. But I'm doing this so I can boast. See, I'm trying to elevate the sacrifices I make, not the sacrifice that God has made for me. I'm busy collecting trophies for myself, but not actually connecting other people's hearts to the Lord. And all I do amounts to this in the eyes of heaven, just a zero. See, stop trying to impress others. Set that concern aside. Let this be your concern, your focus. Put yourself in a place, a, a position where now God can make an impression upon you. A young man was laying in a hospital bed waiting surgery, and his, his father came by to, to visit. And the young man said to his father, he said, Dad, I, I hope I recover in time to be home for Father's Day. I, I need to be there. I mean, I just will never forget how years ago I let you down. I was only 10 years old at the time, but that year, I didn't have a gift for you. And I felt awful. I mean, that has haunted me ever since. Well, the father smiled and said, I remember that too, but not like you do, son. Yeah, I remember that year, years ago. I, I remember that Saturday before Father's Day. I, I saw you in the store. You didn't know I was there, but I was watching. I knew why you were there in the store. You were trying to get a gift for me. But I was watching as you picked up that electric razor and you stuffed it inside your pocket and, and I knew you didn't have any money and I was so disappointed to think that you were gonna try and run out of the store without even paying for it. I mean, you had to resort to stealing to just get a gift for me. I was crushed. But then I noticed how you didn't carry out the plan. I noticed how you stood there for the longest time kind of thinking about this and finally you took that electric razor back out of the pocket and set it back down on the counter and then you walked out of the store with nothing in your hands. And then, son, I remember the next day, Father's Day, I noticed how you stayed outside all day playing with the kids. You did your very best to avoid me because you knew you didn't have a gift. And you thought because you didn't have a present to share with me, I'd be hurt and disappointed. But, son, you were so wrong because that day when I saw you in the store, when I saw you put that electric razor back in the counter, when you decided to do the right thing and not the wrong thing, you gave me the best present of all. What kind of present did the son give to his father? heart. See, that's what God's looking for, a heart that says, I don't want to do anything to disappoint him. I never want to do anything to ever let him down. I don't want to do anything that would ever dishonor him. That's the kind of heart that God can work with. That's the kind of heart where God can make a home. It's a heart that cares, really cares about him and cares about what he cares about. See, stop trying to impress others. Don't worry about that kind of stuff anymore. Set that aside. And let this be your concern. Let this be your focus. Put yourself in a place in your position where now God can make an impression upon you. Carol Kinn is a writer, a Christian writer, and she tells about David. She's taking the day off, so she was sitting at the breakfast table. She said she was wearing an old pair of slacks and this fuzzy sweater, neither of which matched. But she didn't care. Hey, it's my day off. Well, sitting across the table that day was her little boy, Jason. He was busy eating a bowl of cereal when all of a sudden he looked up and he smiled and said, Mommy, you look so pretty today. And Carol said, I could tell by the look in his eyes, he wasn't teasing. He really meant what he said. So she asked him, son, why would you say that? I got no makeup on today. I mean, normally I'm all dressed up in a suit and high heels, but today I look so plain, so ordinary. Why would you say I look so pretty? And Jason said, because, Mom, on those days when you're all dressed up, I know you're getting ready to head off to work, and I'm not going to see much of you. But when you look like this, now I know you're all mine. I wonder if God doesn't feel like that. 
I wonder if God doesn't get tired of just seeing us once a week when we get all dressed up and come to a building like this and this is the only opportunity he has to actually interact with us because of the rest of the week we're so busy doing other things. We're just not available to him. I wonder if God doesn't treasure those moments when in the middle of the week the burdens become too heavy and the troubles just begin to pile up and our hearts hurt so bad we begin to cry out to God for help. And as we cry out, we don't care how we look, we don't care how we sound, we're not concerned at all about how pretty the prayer might be. We're in so much pain, we just know we need God's help. And I wonder if God doesn't treasure those moments because in those moments he knows we're not trying to impress him, we're just needing help. And when we come to him in those moments of desperation, at that moment, he knows he has our full attention. And now God can begin to draw near to us in ways that he couldn't on other occasions. See, stop trying to impress others. Set that concern aside. Make this your concern. Make this your focus. I want to put myself in the kind of places, the kind of positions where now God can make an impression upon me. And here's the result. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. It's got to start there with his love, his love. And as his love gets a hold of our heart, it changes how we care for others. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for each one of us here today that our hearts would become your home, your permanent home, a place where your Holy Spirit could reside, a place, a home where your Holy Spirit always feels welcomed and always feels honored. God, we want your Holy Spirit to be free to carry out his ministry in each and every one of us, to do his work not only upon us to change us, but to do his work through us so he can just really begin to pour out that divine love on all those people that we meet and interact with on a daily basis. God, I want the world around us to see how awesome you are because of how you display your love through us. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You saw